Well, this morning, uh, I'd like to have Nick Billich come up. Um, Brian Stupar and his family have returned from Hungary successfully. Isn't that great? They made it back, and they're back. But as Brian and uh, Sherry are on sabbatical this summer, uh, resting and a part of that, we have different speakers uh, from within our body here that share on Sunday mornings. And Nick happens to be one of them, who's been the head of our worship team and also head of the high schoolers and works all over the place here. (laughs) So, blessings. Let's pray for Nick this morning. Father, we're grateful to Nick, and we're grateful for his, um, again, love for you first and as a worshiper of you. Would you uh, encourage Nick this morning? But, Lord, would you give us hearts to receive your word this morning, ears to hear, and uh, quicken our hearts to obey what you speak to us out of your word. Strengthen and comfort us this morning. Encourage Nick. Anoint him with your, the Holy Spirit to bring your word in simplicity and yet in power. We love you, Lord, and thank you for the privilege of being before your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, Nick. It's coming through. Ooh, ooh. Ooh, hey there. <laughs> Put some effects on the voice, like some delay. Is that, is that okay? Is it a little tinny? We forgot to do a sound check on the mic, so this is, this is the behind the scenes right here. Um, speaking of, wasn't that awesome that Gunther tied in the gospel to picking up your lost and found? I thought that was, that was awesome. <laughs> and, oh, hey, uh, Gunther, um, can I grab that mic from you? Uh, actually, did you take that back? Because we've got um, a little interview that we're going to do before we start. Uh, so la- last weekend, we took the youth group up to City Impact. Um, how many people have heard of City Impact uh, before? Oh, nice. Okay, so this is a familiar deal. Sweet. Thanks, bro. Um, so we took the, the youth group up to City Impact last weekend uh, for their conference. And what we want to do is invite one of our youth group students, Olivia, up to share just her experience, what God was doing, um, and how she learned from the weekend. So if you all want to give Olivia a hand, this is her first time (laughs) being brave and speaking in front of the church. Awesome. How's it going, Olivia? Pretty good. Do do you want to tell everybody what grade you're in? I'm in ninth. Eight. I'm going into tenth. I forgot. (laughs) So I'm a sophomore. Cool, cool. And how how long have you been coming to Calvary Slow Youth Group? About a little over a year, probably almost two. Nice, cool, cool. And you started going in junior high? Yes. Nice. Yeah. So you were with Eric and stuff. Cool, cool. Well, do you wanna do you wanna talk a little bit about what you saw God doing up at City Impact last weekend? Yeah. Um. Well, if you've ever been to the Tenderloin in San Francisco, it's obvious to see that there's a lot of struggle and hurting and sadness, but I think that makes it so much more obvious to see what God's doing there. And you can obviously see his presence and how he's moving in the people and how all these amazing people that work with City Impact are are serving and loving because they love God, and it's amazing to see all the people that are being affected. 
That's cool. That's cool. So is there one like moment that you look back and you're like, oh, that was the highlight of the trip for me? Well, we had, um, we were part of the building parties, which went into the apartments buildings and had a sort of party <laughs> and um, set up food and bingo and things and anybody who lived in the buildings could come down. And there were a couple really young girls there and just to see them having fun and just having community with them was really sweet because you can see that they don't get that very often and it's something I think we always take for granted. Cool, cool. And if there was one thing that you feel like God was teaching you about what it means to live out the gospel over the weekend, is there anything that you can like put a, point, a finger on? Um, I think that living on mission is something that is easier to do than you might think. Because a lot of times I know that I used to think you had to go somewhere big and do something great, like a missions trip or an outreach, when it doesn't really have to be that way. Because everyone has their own struggles, whether it's financial or emotional, and you can just help every day by being loving and sharing God's word. Yeah, that's awesome. Amen to that. Cool. Let's, let's thank Olivia. Thanks, Olivia. That was awesome. Cool. Um, that was sweet. Sorry, I'm trying to find a place where this won't fall down. There we go. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you all realize this, but we, we did a couple bake sales um, over the last couple weeks to support that trip. And so if you guys bought a donut or a scone or whatever, you guys participated in that. It might have been a buck, um, but you're investing in you know, people like Olivia who are experiencing God in these you know, amazing, tangible ways and relational ways and stuff. And that's cool. That's what we do as a church, right? We support each other as we're doing God's work, right? Um, so yeah, that's, that's a trip we do every year, and we're super thankful for what God does every year, and, and thankful for y'all's support, too. Um, so if, if you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We're going to be in Acts 11, starting in verse 19, if you want to turn there. And I, I realized that we didn't put the, the, the text on the slides, so you're going to have to go old school. You're going to you're gonna have to go there yourself. Uh, so if you don't have one, um, there's a couple of people coming around. Uh, and then I, I think we have one... Yeah, we <laughs> pens up front. Um, and uh, if you don't, yeah, if you didn't get one and we ran out for some reason, uh, maybe there's a seat partner who can share with you. But we're going to be in Acts 11. So I'm going to turn there real quick, starting verse 19. Uh, so, so just a little bit of background before before we read the text and talk about what Gunther taught through last weekend. We've been kind of going through this this whole Peter story, right? And so Peter, you know, hangs out with this guy, Cornelius, and preaches the gospel, and all these crazy things are going on. And, and last, last week, we, we saw the story of Peter going to Jerusalem, and he gets confronted by these guys in the circumcision group, which is this group of Jewish Christians who felt like everybody that was coming into the, this new... So, so right now, everyone's thinking about Jesus and, and the whole movement around 
him as this Jewish messianic movement, right? It's this new movement of God, this new revelation of God. To use Gunther's term from last week, it's a revivision. If you guys caught that, that was awesome. <laughs> if you didn't catch it, you, you can check it out from last week. Um, but, but God's doing this new thing. And, and so this group of Jews was, was thinking that everyone who comes into to our, um, our, our, our group, in a sense, Gentiles specifically, need to go through the whole process of being a Jewish proselyte, including circumcision. So that's a, that's a long process, right? That's a, a lengthy, detailed process. And so they come up to Peter, and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Like, you're not, you're not doing, you know, doing this the, the right way. You're, you're engaging with Gentiles and, and worshiping and eating with them. And they, they haven't even gone through all these steps yet. And, and Peter's like, okay, well, hold on a minute. Let me tell you this story. And he recounts this amazing story where God worked in his life, in Cornelius' life, through Cornelius' servants, through Cornelius' family, bringing them all together to share the gospel and, 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 and we see from what Luke writes, Luke, the author of, of Acts, he writes that many people were saved. And, and, and so Peter's like, here's what happened. And, and he ends with, I love this, uh, it's in verse 17. He, sa- he says, if then God gave the same gifts to them as to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I, I, lo- I love that. He's like, who was who I to resist where God was leading. And then after that, it says, everyone was silent. They were like, that's a really good point. And then they glorified God. So, 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 that's, where, so that's where we're picking up right now. Um, and, and today we're going to look at the story of the beginning of the church in Antioch. And, uh, and, and you might be looking at these, this string of stories and thinking like, man, Luke's talking a lot about the Gentiles receiving the gospel. Like, we get the idea. And, and, and what I think is cool is Luke's making it absolutely clear that God's not just doing something new within the Jewish faith, but he's doing something that's global and that relates to everybody, everybody from all you know, tribe, tongue, nation across the globe. And, and this is the story that kicks off what we're going to see as Paul's missionary trip where, trips where he brings the gospel to the entirety pretty much of the Roman Empire. Um, so, so it's a really beautiful kind of foundational section that we're looking on. Um, and uh, so let's, um, so yeah, today we're going we're gonna to observe a few f- details surrounding this story. But we're going to spend most of our time talking about how God works through suffering. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Uh, but I, I want let, to, let's, let's uh, read the text and then we'll pray. And then we'll, we'll talk about uh, a couple things. And then we'll worship and have Sean Clark was awesome. And the rest of the guys, those guys are killer musicians. I don't know if I've seen a pedal steel on stage in a long time since Brandon played the last time. And I was super stoked on that. Okay, enough about music. Let's, let's read God's word. So, so we're starting in verse 19. Uh, so here we go. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews. For there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. So those are the Greeks that are in Antioch. Also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of God was on them. And a great number who believed turned to Jesus. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray. Um, God, thank you for thanks for thanks for everyone here. God, um, uh, Lord, I, I look out at, at friends, um, people that uh, that you've you've blessed um, with the ability to worship together, um, new faces, God, and, and it's just proof that um, you're working in the hearts of your people. And God, you desire to show us yourself today. Um, God, your word is, uh, is, is life to us. And Father, we want to receive that life from you. Um, God, we want to see you in your glory and uh, in the, the, the depths of love that you have for us. And so God, as we study, as we look at you uh, bringing your gospel to a place like Antioch and how you did that, um, God, help us. To, to see the bigger picture of um, nothing can stop what you're doing in this world, God. Nothing can stop the life and the redemption that you bring through your gospel, changing people, and then us living that out in this world. And so, God, we pray for your blessing. Um, lead us, Holy Spirit, today. And uh, we lift all this up to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk about a couple of details concerning the church at Antioch. So, uh, in, in verse nineteen, Luke, who's the author of Acts, he he kind of he kind of goes through this whole story, and he's talking about Peter and all that kind of stuff. And here he kind of hits the rewind button because the so the language he's using is is referencing uh, Acts eight one. You know, he talks about. The, the, the Christians, um, Stephen's, so these are Stephen's uh, Greek-Jewish uh, Christian com- compatriots, if, if, if you can think about it that way. Um, these, are, these are people who were raised uh, in Greek cities, um, uh, so they would call them uh, diaspora Jews. And, and these were people who grew up in, in different towns outside of Judea. Um, and who were really familiar with the Greek culture. These were the people that were scattered. And what Luke's doing is saying, okay, so all this happened, but meanwhile, you know, fast, like, rewind. From when Stephen was brutally murdered, y'all remember that in, in Acts 8, this, this is what God was doing at the same time that he was doing all this other stuff between Acts 8 and, and what we just read, um, Acts 8, 9, 10, and the beginning of 11. Uh, so you can kind of think about this next story as taking place concurrently with what we've just been studying over the past few weeks. Uh, so, so Luke wants us to, to know that, that as Peter was, was going through all these stuff, God was doing something else through these Jews. Um, and, 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 and he focuses us in on, on Antioch. Um, and it's interesting, too. These, so we, we read that these Jews who were, who were kind of fled Jerusalem because of the persecution that was led by Saul, interestingly enough, as they scattered... Um, Paul himself, throughout this time, was saved. And, and, and that's, that's a whole beautiful story that we'll get into as the weeks go on. 
Um, but they were only speaking to Jews. Right now, their, their mentality was like, whoa, this is a revelation that, that is for God's people, the Jews. And, and Paul even talks about it. He's like, you know, this is the good news for Jew first and then Gentile. But, but what they're beginning to see, and, and we're going to read about it in a sec, is that God wants to take his word to everybody. Um, and, and it's really cool to think about who he used to do this in this section. Um, but first, I want to talk about Antioch. Uh, and why is Antioch at all interesting to our story here? Uh, so the city of Antioch was on the Arontes River. I don't even know if I said that correctly. But, uh, but you, can kinda, you can see it on the map there um, in your, your left-hand corner. Uh, but it was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and uh, an inland from the Mediterranean there. Um, and it, this was the third largest city at the time in the Roman Empire be, behind Rome and Alexandria. And it was this mel melting pot of all different types of cultures, uh, Greeks, Romans, uh, the Jews, Arabs, Persians. This is a, a huge metropolitan city where all these sorts of cultures and different religious backgrounds were, were coming together. And, and not only was Antioch famous for its games, its chariot races, um, but it was also known throughout the whole Roman Empire, the known world, I guess, uh, for its deliberate pursuit of pleasure. This was like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, and, and Antioch was famous for the worship of Daphne. Um, and there was a temple about five miles outside of Antioch. Um, and, and day and night, th this place was, was just flooded with people going there to worship. And, and a central part of this act of worship was reenacting Apollo's pursuit of Daphne, where guys would go and, and reenact this with the temple priestesses who were prostitutes. And, and, and this whole culture that was very much impacted by this worship, um, throughout the, the Roman Empire, the phrase, the morals of Daphne, were a euphemism for depravity. Uh, the Roman satirist, uh, Juvenal, took a stab at Rome at one point when he said, the Arontes has flowed into the Tiber, flooding the city with wickedness. So you, you, you can get this picture of not only was Antioch this huge place of all, you know, all different types of cultures, but it was also a very dark place in light of God's, God's gospel, right? And how cool is it that this is where God's taking the gospel? This is where the, the first interaction where, where Jewish Christians are actually reaching out to people who have never heard of God before, who have no Jewish background. And all the other, all the other stories, we find Gentiles reaching out to Jews. You, know, you think about uh, uh, Philip and the eunuch. You think about Cornelius and Peter. They're, they're inviting the, 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 Jewish, the, apostles, the Jewish Christians, the apostles, to tell them the gospel. But here, the Jewish Christians are going out and seeking the Gentiles. And, uh, and so this is, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing that God's doing. He's taking the gospel and he's starting a church that is going to be known for worldwide missions. They're Paul's sending church for the rest of the Acts. Um, this is where he's starting the church. Uh, and, and lastly, it's... I, th I think it's it's interesting if you it's it's really quick, but you see that they were preaching Jesus as Lord, and and so the Greek term there is is kurios as opposed to Christos, which is the Greek word for Messiah, and and this is really interesting too because for the Greeks that these 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 Jewish Christians were preaching to, they knew that they had no concept of 
Messiah or this, this, this length of, of prophetic uh, writings that the Jews were super familiar with. And, and so what they're doing is they're taking the gospel and actually translating it for these Greeks who may not get this idea of Messiah, but definitely get the idea of Lord. Um, and so this is a, an amazing example of, of Christians seeing, whoa, if we want to reach these people, if we want to preach the gospel in a way that's going to impact them, we're going to find a lens through which they can see the glory of God. Um, so, so I want to, I want to spend, uh, we're going to actually spend a lot of time talking about this little snippet at the beginning of this section. And it's that the, these, these Jewish Christians uh, from Cyprus and Cyrene were scattered because of Stephen's persecution. And I'm going to get a drink of water real quick because I'm super parched. Okay, there we go. Because uh, when, when, when I was reading this, I, I was reading through the text, and then, and then I just stopped, and I was just like, wait, hold on, God. You're saying that the way that you brought the gospel to Antioch, and, and we read that many people were getting saved, that God was doing this amazing work, and, and you're telling me that, that the way that you kicked this off was through the brutal and heinous murder of this man, Stephen, who was this amazing, vibrant man of faith. God, God, God's, God's taking this, this horrible act, and he's saying, this is what I'm using to bring the gospel to Antioch. And, and so I want to talk about how, how do we as Christians understand evil and suffering? Um, raise your hand if, if in the last couple months you've either experienced something in your life or read a news line that you're just like, this brings a sense of hopelessness in my heart. Yeah, look, look around. That's a common experience for us in this world. Um, if there's anything we know, that our, our world is ripe with suffering and evil um, and hardship. And so I think thinking about the, the, the small instance where, where Luke kind of passes over it, but he says... After, after Stephen was murdered, this is what kicked off this, this process. Um, I want to talk about how we as Christians understand evil and suffering. Uh, John Stott um, said that suffering is, is undoubtedly um, the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. And, and I'm still wrestling with how much I agree with that. But I think what John Stott is saying is that when we look at God's greatness, his love, his power, when we look at God's character in the Bible and then we see suffering in the world, sometimes it's really hard to meld those together. Sometimes it's really tough to make sense of how can there be this amazing, beautiful, loving Savior and at the same time this horrible stuff, right? Uh, David Hume, 18th century Scottish philosopher, uh, I'm going to paraphrase this, um, but he, he made this famous critique of, of Christianity, and, and he said this. Um, he, he said, if God is willing but unable to pre- prevent evil, then he can't be omnipotent. He can't be all-powerful. And if God is able to prevent evil but unwilling to do so, then he is not perfectly good. So if God is willing and able to prevent evil, then why is evil in the world? That's a great way to characterize, I think, a struggle that we all face. A loving, uh, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful God 
but yet the presence of evil in this world. And, and, and I, don't think the, I don't think Luke is, is directing the, um, directly answering the question of why there is evil in the world, um, but I think he's making a statement um, that although God doesn't always prevent evil and suffering, he will always overcome evil and suffering. Amen to that. Um, so let, let's talk about this. One, one of the most famous verses that comes up when we think about suffering is Romans 8.28. And I'm going to read this in the NLT, uh, the New Living Translation. It says, um, and we know that God causes everything to work together for good to those who love God uh, and, and are called according to his purpose for them. I'm going to read that again just to, to bring it home. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what I so the author uh, who's, who's writing now is Paul, the apostle. And what I, what I'm, what I think thinking he says is, is that God is causing everything, evil and suffering included, to work together to accomplish his good and perfect will in this world and in our lives. Um, and and that's, a, that's a statement that I think is really fleshed out in an amazing way by the story of Joseph. Uh, how many people remember reading the story of Joseph where he gets sold into slavery, he's got a cool coat, he becomes you know, this high-power guy in Egypt and ends up saving everybody uh, from starvation. Um, so let's take a look at his, his life for a second. I'm going to read... Uh, there's a, a theologian, uh, Vernon Grounds, um, amazing name, but, but he says this about Jacob's life. So, uh, or I'm sorry, about Joseph's life. Uh, so Jacob, Joseph's dad, his expressively and unwise, uh, I'm sorry, his expressive and unwisely partial love for his son in his old age was bad. He loved Joseph so much, and, and he express, expressed it at the expense of loving his older sons. This was not good. The priggish conceit of young Joseph was bad. The understandable hatred of Joseph's brothers for him was bad. And their conspiracy to kill him was bad. The sale of Joseph into, the, into Midianite slavery was bad. The lie that Joseph's brothers told Jacob was bad. The heartbreak of the bereaved father was bad. The temptation which befell Joseph in Egypt was bad. His imprisonment, imprisonment, even though he was an innocent man, was bad. And thus, the components of his experience, each taken singly, were unconsequentially bad. Yet what the outcome of all, or what was the outcome of all these things? As Joseph finally faces his brothers, having by his God-bestowed foresight, preserved them and the whole nation of Egypt from starvation, this is what Joseph could say. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended harm for me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to care to take care of you and your children. And so Joseph reassured them by speaking to them kindly. Um, Vernon continues, yes, indeed, where men intended evil, God intended, intends good. And his love and wisdom and power, he makes human wrath to his praise. And out of the black components of our experience, he brings a shining result. All things work together for good. 
And I think when we look at Joseph's life, we see that God and his power and his goodness repurposes the actions of a sinful humanity to bring about his good and perfect plan. And it's interesting, too, to think about this. Like, it, it wasn't just that God saved an entire nation, including Joseph's brothers, because he, he, gives, he gives Joseph this wisdom, this vision that to, to store up grain. And this ends up saving you know, the entire nation of, of, uh, of Egypt, um, again, his brothers included. Um, and that is an amazing act of God's providence, working through these evil acts on a number of different people's uh, behalf. Um, but he also changes Joseph's heart, right? Um, think about this for a sec. If you had your, your family betray you to that degree, sell you into slavery, um, you know, beat you up, and, and you go through this whole string of events, and you see them, and they're, they're literally gr- kneeling at Joseph's feet in this instance, what would be your response? If, if, I, if I asked myself, I, I want some revenge, I'd be like, oh, like, I'm in power, and you guys are going to get, like, stomped on right now. But, but what, did, what did God do? Through all this experience, he's shaping Joseph's heart. Through all these hardships, he's shaping Joseph to respond and forgiveness and love to the very people that persecuted him. Um, and, and isn't this the story of the gospel? Uh, Jesus was rejected by his own brothers. Um, he was betrayed by the ones who were closest to him. Uh, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver and imprisoned. Um, he was falsely accused and convicted. He was beaten, he was mocked, and he was brutally murdered. And how did God take all these negative, horrible, evil acts? And, and we, we, we can think about those as being enacted on a person. But if we think about those as being enacted on God himself, um, God's beloved son, this isn't just a mere human. This is, this is God incarnate, the, whole, the holy of holies come into flesh. How horrible of a crime are these when they're committed against Jesus, right? And yet, what does God do? On the third day, he brings redemption through Jesus' death and resurrection to all humanity. We, if, if you're saying amen in your heart, like, this is a good, this is a good amen, because this is a testimony to how God uses suffering and evil in our lives. Um, he's working through it to bring this shining result. Um, but I, I think we would be foolish to, to just leave it there because raise your hand if you've, yeah, amen, brother. Um, raise your hand if you've experienced suffering and evil in your life and you still to this day have no reason. You can't see how God has worked through it. Yeah, look around you. Look around you. This is also reality of us as Christians is that Oftentimes, we see something that's horrible in our lives, and we ask this question, God, why? You know, I read your word, and, and I hear the verses like Romans 8, 28. I'm like, all things work together for good. I know you're going to do something with this, but yet that, that, that message, that res- resolution remains distant from us, and we have no idea what it is. Um, we would be foolish uh, not to, to think about what happens when we don't get that shining result. Um, what about the times when evil and suffering don't make sense and we don't see God's purposes behind them? Um, and, and I think another story from Scripture that 
that weighs in on this situation is the story of Job. Uh, at the end of Job, um, Job's super PO'd with God. And, he's, and if, if you read the story, he, it's kind of like, yeah, I understand why you would be that mad. And, and he spends this, this whole chapter in the book uh, expressing how frustrated he is with God. Like, think about those times where you've prayed and you're just like, God, I, I know you want me to be, uh, you know, like joyful and, you know, like count it all joy when you experience these various trials. I know you want me to, to realize, you know, your goodness and all that, but right now I just need to vent my frustration in this moment. And, and this is what Job is doing. And he's literally saying, what the heck, God? I've done nothing to deserve all these things. Like, look at my life. You're not treating me fairly. And, and this is how God answered, answers Job. Um, this is Job 38, uh, verses 1 through 7. And God says this to Job. He says, Who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretching out and stretched out the surveying lines? What supports its foundations and who has laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together with all the angels shouting for joy. God continues for three chapters asking Job questions like this. Uh, will you ever put me in the wrong? God's asking Job. Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? And at the end, this is how Job responds to God. He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, Job's asking God, why, why, why? And I love this, too, because if you read the text, God doesn't cut Job off. God's not a God that hears our, our, our frustrations with him and, and cuts us off and says, like, you know, shut up. I'm not going to listen to you. Look at how awesome I, is. I, I am. He hears every single word of Job, right? But then this is how he responds. And he, and he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't answer Job's question of why. Um, God says, this is who I am. And, and he reminds Job of who he is. Uh, and, and, and this is, after Job sees who God is, he's not responding to God with another question of like, but God, why? He says, you can do anything. And there's nothing that you will that can be turned away or messed up by anything. And, and, and this is what I think the story of Job tells us, is, is that one, when we're suffering and experiencing evil, I think our first step is to ask the question, why, right? We want to know why. We want to know what the, the, the purpose of it is. And, and what God, I think God's saying is like, what you really need, you don't need to know why. You don't need more information, but what we really need is the assurance of the solution, right? And that's exactly what we have in Jesus Romans 8, 37 through 39 says this. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? Right? There's nothing, there's nothing in Christ Jesus that can separate us from being the recipients of God's perfect plan and will in our lives. There's no evil that can, that, that can impact our lives. There's no suffering that we can go through that is going to tear you away from the promises that you have in Jesus Christ, which is back to Romans 8.28, that everything in your life, everything is working together for good, for God's perfect plan in this world to redeem it and to, to build up your life to look like Christ. Um, because of Jesus, there is nothing powerful enough to separate us from God's presence and our suffering, his love and fulfillment of his promises, uh, that he's working everything together for good. So I think dealing with this question about how do we think about suffering in our own lives, especially when we don't have the answer, the way we deal with it is we bring God's character, his power, his sovereignty, his great love for us, to bear upon our circumstances. We remind ourselves of God, of his love, who we are. And, and so the, back to the, the murder of Stephen. Um, so even though Stephen, this, this beautiful man who was just bursting with the Holy Spirit, the fruits of God's grace in his life, even though he was terribly, horribly murdered, um, God used this. He leveraged this, the sinful acts of man. He took it and he used it to bring his gospel to Antioch. Um, so I, uh, I think right now we'll, we'll invite the worship team up. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to close with this. Uh, we skipped a lot of awesome stuff in the middle of this chapter, talking about Barnabas, who he was, that he was a man who was good and full of the Holy Spirit, that he was an encourager, um, talking about him and Paul pastoring this church. But there's one thing at the end that I I, want to close with, and it's that this was the first time that Christians were called Christians. And and this this is the first time this this term was ever used. And it's only used a couple times in in all of the New Testament. Um, but the term is, is actually this, this combination of a Greek and Latin word. It's the, the Greek term Christos, which is Messiah, Jesus, and this Latin term Ianus, which is belonging to. And uh, commentators talk about this, this title was given to believers by the non-Christian community uh, because they believed, um, or because Christians, uh, who weren't termed that way, but followers of Christ would say Jesus is Lord as opposed to Caesar is Lord. And there's a theologian, Kent Hughes, who has this awesome perspective on this. He says, if a spiritual dynamic operated among us, causing people to reach out for a new word to describe what was going on, what word would it be? What words do they use now? When God's people live for Christ in such depth and power that those around them have to strive for a new term to describe what they see, that right there is awesome and beautiful. And so I think if the story of the Bible is about God redeeming this broken world filled with evil and suffering, I think we 
when we live, when we are Christians, when we're following and belonging to Christ in the midst of our suffering, God will inevitably demonstrate his power and depth of love in amazing ways. Um, so let's, let's stand and pray and worship. Uh, God, you, you're a God who, who doesn't let anything stand in your way, Lord. And, and God, thinking about um, just evil, God, it's, it's not a barrier to you, God. And, and Lord, there's all of us in this room are recipients of you taking evil in our lives that we've expressed towards you, our rejection of you as God, as, as our Savior, as our King. Um, you've taken our rejection of you and you've spoken forgiveness and mercy and love into our lives, God, taking the, the greatest rejection um, and, and bringing us into the greatest relationship, God. You've redeemed us. And so, Lord, if, if that is what you have done in our lives and that's what you were doing in this world now and that's what you will do ultimately, God, that you will redeem our world, God. You will wipe every tear from our eyes and, and take sin and suffering and evil um, forever, eternally from us, from this, this world. Uh, God, we just, we thank you that that is the God who speaks even now into our suffering, saying, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and that I will always be with you, and that there's nothing that can separate you from my love and from the promises that I've made to you, um, that one day this will all work out together for, for your good and perfect will and for our best. And so, Lord, thank you for this word, um, and we pray that uh, we would live from the truth that you've spoken to us. Thank you, God. Amen.